everyone. Today is October 12th. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Our guest today is Anne Grabiel, who's Institute Professor at MIT and Investigator at the McGovern Institute, also at MIT. Her discovery of the striosomal organization of the basal ganglia really established um, a framework for studying the functional and computational organization of cortical basal ganglia systems and how they underlie all manner of action, and hopefully we'll talk about some of those. I should probably mention to our listeners that the influence of her work is universally acknowledged through numerous accolades, including the Kavli Prize in Neuroscience and the National Medal of Science, just to name two. So like around the room, we have, sorry, I missed that part. <laughs> we have, hi, Anne, first of all. Hi. <laughs> and we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got um, Alfonso Apicella. Hello. We've got Matt Wannett. Hello. Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I reintroduced myself, Selma. So, um, and by, by way of introduction, can you say something about how corticostriatal loops are involved in flexible behavior versus more procedural habit type things and perhaps the evolution of one to the other? How are we supposed to think about cortical basal ganglia loops and sort of just, to, just as an, an introduction? Right. So, We've made only a little headway in being able to, to get an answer to that, but what we have found, which we find very interesting, is that if we record from ensembles of neurons in the striatum, as uh, animals learn habits, and by animals I usually mean rats and mice, then over time as they acquire a given behavior, uh, cells in part of the striatum, in a rodent that's called the dorsal lateral striatum, or citrometer striatum, neurons there uh, begin to accentuate their firing uh, at the beginning and then again at the end of this uh, behavior that's beginning to get repetitive. And these uh, kind of getting end or bracketing patterns can become quite strong and involve uh, some percent of neurons, maybe it's only 12%, maybe it's 50%, it depends on exactly what we do. But we've seen this now in rats and mice and monkeys. And that pattern <clears throat> stands in sharp contrast to what's going on in the more medial or associative stridum in the rats, if we call it dorsomedial stridum. And there, uh, generally, the behavior that's going to be a habit does not become bracketed by this accentuated activity. Instead, activity in general rises, especially during the uh, choice points in any given task, like running a maze, a team maze task we used a lot, and then gradually it subsides as the habit kind of becomes strong. And we think maybe that is one indication that uh, cortical pathways that are related to the associative <laughs> with the frontal lobe, say, that they're active during the goal-directed parts of this behavior when the first the animal is kind of deliberatively doing something, and then bit by bit the, the uh, activity is passed over to the sensory motor stride and a part of it which can become an actuator, kind of a enabler of that pattern to be performed as a whole pattern instead of as 
an individual series of, of behaviors if you follow that. So the only evidence we have for what might control that has come from trying to manipulate cortical regions projecting down to the striatum. And in doing that, um, first uh, with Kyle Smith, later with Eric Bigger and several other people, um, we tried inhibiting cortical input to the striatum, and we could uh, inhibit just as the animals were performing their habit, for example, running a teammates, and we could block the habit so they no longer repetitively performed in the habitual way. We could, if that habit had been blocked, we could have it come back later by later manipulating the same cortical site, which is really quite amazing. And we figured maybe, we don't know, the animals formed a second habit, which we then broke to reveal the underlying original habit, which was there all the time. But somehow, uh, our electrodes were blind to, to the pattern and so on. But then there's one very interesting thing we, we, so we could prevent a habit from being formed, we could break a habit, and we could prevent a very particular compulsive behavior, for example, grooming in a mouse model of, kind of a mouse model of OCD. But one thing we found that I, I think is intriguing, we, we recorded, and this was work that uh, Kyle Smith and I did, recorded from um, a cortical region, IL, so-called IL in the rat, and the dorsolateral striatum simultaneously. And then what we found is that the cortical cells develop that bracketing pattern, but very late in the game, long after the striatum has already got a very clear pattern. Then we tried the manipulation that psychologists call devaluation, in which we made the reward not very rewarding anymore by a pretreatment. And when we did that, the bracketing pattern that had finally taken hold in the cortex became very obscured, but the stridal pattern was absolutely solid as a rock. So what it, it said to us is, whatever that bracketing is in the stridum, it can become so strong that even in the absence of any reward and, and experience with non-reward, it is, it's kind of there for good compared to what's in the cortex. Well, where else would the input be coming from then? If uh, it's driving, then the uh, spiny projection neurons to be able to have this bracketing pattern if you can dysregulate the, the cortical input. What are the other potential sources that might be playing a role in driving the sort of habit formation and treatment? Right. Well, the striatum is famous for having very strong cortical inputs, very strong thalamic inputs, very strong dopamine-containing <laughs> inputs, and so on. Uh, Serotonin-containing inputs, some amygdala inputs, um, and then a lot of interneurons. And there's something that we've found now that um, I hope we'll see come out uh, that we, we have found a kind of anti-bracketing pattern also in the striatum. So we've found some cells that will 
particularly because they're firing just when the uh, in the dip that produces the bracket. So that's a hint, but we don't have we don't have causal evidence that they are the ones that produce the uh, the, the, the appearance of a beginning and an end due to a lack of firing in the middle. But that's a sort of hint that there may be intrinsic. Uh, microcircuitry as well as input circuitry that can produce it. I, pick, I, I keep thinking about something I read in one of your review articles that about that bracketing pattern. So you know, we think of those, that part of the cortex that projects to the sensory motor stridum is it's the motor cortex, and, um, and that's the part of the stridum that responds most strongly to the motor cortex, and it's normally thought that the basal ganglia are engaged in that performance uh, of movement, and that here's a situation where right when the, the mouse or the rat is walking down this maze on the way to the choice point, uh, the stridum doesn't seem to be doing anything. Well, there are some cells, you know, there are always, if you read those papers, you'll see that 7% were related to the this and the 15% to the left turn or something. But overall, um, the fire, there's, there are more spikes at the beginning and the end, and in some instances that's because there are more cells that fire at the beginning and the end. In other cases, it's because there may not be more cells, but they fire more then. Uh-huh. But there's something left, and we call them little expert nerves. Uh-huh. The guys that are It doesn't spikes. take too many. However, we have done, experts. No. You only need a few experts. Yeah, that's what I think. It only if you, takes the a few. mob has to be many, but the experts can Correct. be few. That's exactly right. So it's a sparse, you know, so-called sparse uh-huh. representation. The um, We do have evidence that from work that Nune Bartiros um, has done that is um, in submission that um, with simultaneous motor cortex recordings and at least after learning we don't see much sign of that bracketing in M1, the only place we recorded of the various motor cortex places, that the, those cells tend to fire with an individual movement. And she's really done the best job on nailing it, that, that the bracketing pattern isn't just like something related to acceleration at the beginning of a run and deceleration at the end, because the setup that Nune used in her thesis was to have uh, serial lever press, uh, lever press sequences that were unique per animal. And then we could compare the activity patterns when the animal performed its little habit, one, two, one, two, one, one, something like that, versus when the animal made the same physical movements, but they weren't in the habitual order. So I, I, I think, uh, Nini was determined to get that, very, very much resistant to accepting the maze data as as uh, good evidence for bracketing. And she, I, I think she has it. I think, I think the bracketing is there, and it's, it. I mean, we found it first in monkeys making eye movements, and and then uh, Teresa DeRoches, which uh, whom I brought up today, uh, found that again in in the cat monkeys. So, so what does the bracket, so what does it do? Like, well, what does this big signal do? Is it more resetting look, like a basal you are, ganglia? Or? You are an expert uh, in, in the songbird field. 
and a good computational man, and you should be telling me what that bracket is. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, so you, know, you could, the question a little bit, because we're talking about, so you think of the basal ganglia cortical loops, the yellow loop, and you're saying, oh, the, the, it seems to me that some of the stuff that you, you just talked about, since this random is doing a lot of things that's very solid, does it? Yeah. Sometimes the cortex cares about it, or sometimes it doesn't. It ignores that stuff and goes off and, Got it. and does stuff. So the question is then, is this something that could be used to restart? Is it restarting the basal ganglia? That's the easiest thing, right? You have a big thing. Yeah. The basal ganglia has to tell the, 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 the right experts to say, you're on. And then yes. you turn them off. Right, so... And then it's gone, and then the cortex can pay attention or not. So I've, I've speaking of paying attention, I've paid a little bit of attention to this end signal. And I think it's a, it's, a, I don't know how to put it other than a computational signal. I don't think it has to do with stopping, per se, or with I'm going to get an or a reward or something. We've done little control experiments. For example, delaying the reward or changing the reward, et cetera, et cetera. But the brain... This active brain of ours has to know whether what just happened is something it wants to keep alive in the circuitry or get rid of or something like that. So some kind of uh, signal like that would be good uh, for this, what we used to call the extra peak, that, that we get the same after the behavior is over. And for the beginning signal... I don't know whether it could be an initiator signal. Uh, there's a lot of talk now in the dopamine field about whether dopamine could play such a role, as I'm sure you know, it's very controversial. But the brain has to, uh, let's put it this way, in the normal course of events, I, I would think that in evolutionary terms, as you say, it would be very good to have a whole package of behaviors that can be emitted very rapidly, very easily, um, in a certain context. And that's exactly what a plain, ordinary, everyday, plain vanilla habit could be. It's just that our habits as humans become distorted so, so much that when we even use the word habit, we've lost the flavor of the maybe more evolutionarily prime um, sequence of behavior that, that's a keeper, that's a, a really good behavior to have around. Right? Um, so if you look at it in that way, um, what's it good for may be that it somehow passes, at least the beginning signal passes, a threshold somewhere that some people like Wang think that all these basal ganglia signals um, finally get sent, for example, to the superior colliculus, which has a threshold device which can decide whether a behavior will actually be admitted, emitted. And in a way that fits with some of the old work from the nigro colliculus pathway, which we found before a long time. Before all those other people. <laughs> so you've called this chunky uh, in, yep. the, in the past, and that's a reference to a famous paper about working George memory Miller. and about mm -hmm. the, the capacity of working memory. 
So I'm kind of inter- interested in that analogy, like sort of what motor chunking would be. And, and I guess that activity at the beginning and the end is kind of a chunk begin, chunk end sure. signal. And then uh, there has to be a chunk choose, right? Yeah. And so maybe which neurons are firing are choosing the sequence that we're about to begin. And then all they have to do is fire. And then that starts the sequence. And maybe they have to fire again to turn it off at the end. Is that? That sounds very good. <laughs> but these are, you know, these are all ideas to, you know, that remain to be shown. So. A chunk, the chunk is such a, a cool idea. It is, yeah. I was very happy when you thought But how many, but there's For a long like, time I showed seven plus or minus two as the entrance to my plot. So for people who don't know that, Classical paper. I doubt there's anybody who doesn't know that classical paper. Oh, I but think maybe there are people. Yeah, maybe. And, uh, <laughs> and what, the reason that they, that chunking came into it is that you remember seven plus or minus two of anything. So it could be seven plus or minus two digits, or seven plus or minus two words, or se- even seven plus or minus two sentences. Right. On a- people on average, and the joke around MIT. Used to be that it was uh, for MIT undergrads, it was fourteen plus or minus uh-huh. two, right? That's great, <laughs> and and that would help them. The, <laughs> but the, the information content of a chunk, what well, the key to that was, the information content of the chunk isn't important. The chunk could have tons of information in it, uh, it and all that information gets collapsed down right. into one thing, which is a chunk. And apropos of what you said, you can ask um, anyone. To type out their PIN number or their phone number on a keyboard, interrupt them in the middle, and what you find is they very rarely can start out in the middle with the next, the next numeral or something. They have to oh, go right. all the so way back the to notion, the beginning. The notion of, so and that's a motor it, sequence. That right. becomes almost impenetrable. Not quite. So you teach yourself. I used to type. So right? even typing your hand is right. a motor chunk. It's a motor right. chunk. And so they're. There's a long history work on that in the motor system field. Some knowledge passwords had to be 15 characters, and so now you have to come up with some word or some mnemonic. You know, telephone numbers were seven characters because yeah, of this right, paper, same. and now t- telephone numbers are 10 characters long. And and I was thinking, if you're lucky. it's going to be a disaster. And then I realized, oh, nobody ever has to remember a telephone. <laughs> <laughs> so even though those chunks can seemingly be infinite, there's still a limit to how many you can have. And so this idea that the striatum, there's still a finite capacity that you're talking about I within this on-off yeah. uh, interval, right? What, we, what would be such fun would be to have a kind of multitasking experiment, teach the animal a whole bunch of different little behaviors, and then see whether different cells participate in different little behavioral Chunks. I mean, there are only so many cells, right? So my guess is there's a great big switchboard in there and switching coming in from outside, like the thalamus and the cortex, and um, depending on the context, you switch on and off. And such a little that bit. We, I mean, you record lots of neurons at once, but for that we need to record more. That's right. right. So that's why optical methods for recording are maybe the way to go in the future. Yeah, it's going to be really beautiful. Some people can see a thousand at a time, right? Um, we're seeing a couple hundred at a time, but it's early days. I hope we can see more. 
So one of the things that people have talked about here uh, over and over is the fact that context and stereotyped behavioral assays are really, um, they sort of dictate the way neurons behave that may or may not be a phenomenon of natural behavior, of overlapping yeah. habits, of overlapping right. actions. In the real world, how does an on-off signal get resolved in sort of, uh, you know, overlapping Depending on the context, it can happen very, very fast. <laughs> right. But I guess related to that, what we were talking about before and the context, if you had a, if you had a component, and people do a little bit of this in, say, Songbird, mm-hmm. he's tutoring, you tutor pairs, They've never seen the whole sequence, and you tutor A, B, and B, C, and C, D, and then, not surprisingly, they can sing A, B, C, D. Uh, but you could potentially do a component tasks, and then put them together, and uh, do they have an on-off chunking thing? Does that disappear? And you could switch the sequencing depending on context, right? So then you can see whether the dependence on context is... Do you make two chunks that are the context makes two chunks? I, that's sort of what you would probably do. But you could see it go in between, right? Yeah. We've drawn many, or I've drawn many a little cartoon of experiments like that. Put a little tiny chunk inside a bigger one and then see whether it'll, its beginning thing will get through all of that. But it, uh, I fall back on it right now that these experiments are very labor intensive and so on. So, uh, and getting a mouse to run one TMAZE is one thing. Getting to run five different kinds of tasks in a sequence is not Well, I think, I mean, there's some people who have, you know, many, many, many task boxes operational at the same time, right? And, and they're getting lots of data, but, but yeah, I mean, we, we don't know. And I think really good behavior could Behavioral experiments would be very valuable, and maybe a lot of that could be done, and then you go in at the very end with the heavy-duty recording, hopefully. Couldn't you just in- introduce a delay of some sort of, I mean, in some ways you could think like, a, uh, like in some ways like, you know, five CSRT, you know, five serial choice reaction tests, but like, or some sort of, you've got a bunch of choice of levers, but then the animal has to learn that then you have to have a fixed period where you don't do anything, and then that sort of introduce, like, is that a way that you could introduce a chunk, and you could potentially try, right. I mean, now with, you know, calcium imaging, you could actually see the evolution of these these chunks evolve, where maybe right. you have a single chunk, and then by introducing a delay in between, say, you know, lever presses, you know, two and three, at that point now, you can, does that then chunk get larger, or does it then turn into two chunks? Right. There are wonderful experiments going on right now that I've heard about informally with these imposed delays. Absolutely fascinating. But, yeah, all these things are possible, right? And I think uh, if there were a classical motor systems person here, that person might say, oh, we've done many of these experiments in the motor system field. We simply are... You don't know about <laughs> because my there are a lot of experiments related to learning sequences of behavior on the part of people. There are many, many, many varieties of behavior. And there was was it Hikosaka who had the monkeys yeah. doing the Simon yeah. game kind of thing, right. which which is a game that gets increasingly more 
complicated, but it usually isn't gathered into repeated pieces Correct. with choice points in right. between. But maybe so. There was one uh, one United States researcher who said, "Anna, we just don't see that beginning in anything." And then he came running up to me at a at a meeting in another country. He was attending that meeting, and he said, "I finally get it. We changed the." We change it every day. We change the pattern of the running, <laughs> and they never got the turn, oh. which makes perfect sense. Yeah, right. So the idea is it's the same. Yeah. So what about the part that's not invariant? I mean, there are differences in inner neurons and the responses to reward value that that do vary. Isn't that right? It's not just the on and the off of the output neurons of the, of the spiny neurons. Can you say a little more? Is, it's, or is the entire class of neurons just completely invariant once the reward, or once the the association, the global association is set up? Because they're, they're no, when there are changes of contingency. But the on and the off is the invariant part, generally, as well, long as the reward is present. Invariant is a big word. And I don't yet know anything in the brain that <laughs> Okay, I just said that. It's fully invariant. So, but I, I, I really meant it when I said earlier that in some, I'm not sure whether it's situations or some samples of ensemble data, we have in our lab found that, for example, the beginning peak uh, is comprised of more cells firing, and that's why it's a peak in a population code versus more spikes with about the same number of neurons. So we can't even answer properly just, you know, how many neurons are in there, right? The, in the very, very latest, uh, the uh, lever press test, 12% uh, of the neurons can account for a lot of the bracketing pattern, but it's a very particular task. And we usually have far more of a far larger percentage that participate. And the neurons aren't all doing the same thing. No. They're just all firing at about the same time. Yeah, so that what what came out of the monkey work that Teresa Jerusalem did was that it is precisely a matter of timing. It was in the case of the monkeys, uh, there are a lot of neurons chattering around that time. But what happened is they're they're firing got more and more aligned. They got more and more coherently active, coordinately active at one time, which was in that so-called extra peak time at the end of the movement. So, so is this I'm, related to the oscillation? I wanted to so, talk to you a little bit about oscillation. So is yeah, this related we don't know for that particular experiment, to my great regret. I'm, I'm very much hoping that we have sufficient data to Go after that question. Maybe I can give them all to you. Sure. But, um, yeah, why not? <laughs> but yeah, I could. So, um, but in rats, as you know, we found that if a rat runs down the maze in a maze test uh, and he learns it, then after he has learned it, there's a little burst of beta activity um, around around that extra peak time. Early in learning, there's more gamma, both high and low. And that beta activity that comes at the end um, is in alignment with the firing of both the spiny neurons and a, some class of high-firing neurons and fast-firing neurons, which themselves are 
uh, inversely related to one another. So there does come a time of quite strong coordination in, in the beta activity, and as this occurs, more and more of the neurons simultaneously recorded, this is mainly in the top part of the nucleus accumbens, let's call it, more and more of those neurons participate in that coherent activation pattern. Have you tried to change the activity of these high uh, frequency neurons and see what happened to the oscillation? No. There was, uh, no. We, we started to try and we finally uh, stopped that experiment. It's too bad. Yeah, no, we had PV, PV cream mice who were running the TMAs, but and we tried turning them on or off at the beginning, the middle, and you know, all the things you immediately think to do, but it, it didn't work out. It'll work out for somebody. It didn't work out in my life. But these things are happening. They look like, in the figures, they look like little uh, sort of spindle-shaped bursts of oscillation. Right. And so the field could be are they one associated? or two or three cycles. Uh-huh. Uh, can be a few more cycles. In the you know we've done this in the monkey, uh-huh. right? Yes. And so, in the monkey, there also is a lot of beta activity in the intertrial interval. We have only done this once, and that was in um, an outback visual motor reaching task. And there too, we can get just a few cycles. Sometimes a few more, but they, yeah, they come in little bursts. And then there'd be more than, you know, more than one, because of course th- that little burst is a very brief period in time. That's and right. So, so they're coming and going in some pattern, or they're like sort of appearing regularly, or there's so many questions to ask about the timing of these bursts, and I, I don't know how many been bothered to look at. The the best we have in the in the rat is that in a relatively brief period of time coming many milliseconds after breaking the end beam of the photobeam at the end of the maze, um, a large number of neurons fire together, SPNs fire together, the inhibitory neurons are not firing when they're firing, and there are these little bursts, but they don't go on for several seconds, for example. So it's a, a, a relatively circumscribed thing. And in the monkeys, uh, we didn't have oscillations at the time, but the very first time we saw an extra peak, it was the darnest thing. I mean, the animal was tracking dots turning on on a screen in front of him, so just come on for 400 milliseconds and it would go off, another one would come on. So they, they made little sequences of instructed sequences of eye movements. And if they made four eye movements, we were recording at the time in the, just in front of frontal eye fields, and we found this in associated recordings in the stridum, but most of our effort was up there. If we made four eye movements, we got four responses related to the cicad or maybe to the Visual stimulus eliciting this cat a little bit tough to tell. We we got four of those and we got one extra. And the one extra happened um well maybe I'm trying to remember four hundred milliseconds, let me call it, I may be a little off. Uh after the last eye movement. And if he made 
two cicads, we had three peaks. If you made six cicads, we had seven peaks. So we called it the N plus one response. And, and that, I think, I believe, is the same thing that you're talking about, where the oscillations are, are definitely somehow mixed up in that, especially in rodents, in a rat anyway, and the beta band. So, so we need more experiments. Yeah, so <laughs> we're doing seems, all this work now related this to seems that. seems to be like sub-phases, sub, sub like yeah. breaking the word up into its letters somehow in these difficult bursts of beta, but we really don't know what the, what the sub-components are. Right. We don't know what the signal is. But, it, but I reckon it's a, I think it's a signal that We does. have this kind of dumb view about things. I mean, all of us share this dumb view about things as it being, um, everything being sort of continuous and not broken up into little tiny pieces, even though we know that movements are broken up into little tiny pieces. And, that, yeah. uh, and so we should be looking maybe for the fine structure of some of that stuff. Yes. And it's so interesting, you know, even in the outback, Experiment so the animals of their own will. It was very difficult to bring off. This is Jerry Feingold and others in the lab. They would, there were three targets red, green, and blue targets, and they had to learn the rule red, green, blue, and then our control was, you know, purple, something, something. And um, so what would happen is they would start with a lot of beta activity, right? And then it would, it would be suppressed during a movement because beta suppression does occur, indeed. And then it would start coming back. And the farther along they got in the sequence, the less complete the beta suppression, the more the beta began to come out until the very end. And then, uh-huh. and so it's something down there wanting to come out. But all along, all along, they're packets of beta. So I, I believe we, we, were, we were second to find the packets. The first was Ed Fetz. And in a brilliant old, you know, like facet paper. But then it just sat in the literature. We found it just by our recordings. Yeah. Can you just end on this? this that we, have? we were being forced to end. I'm getting looks Charlie, because he, she has a meeting ahead of her, otherwise we could go on for a few more hours, I'm sure. But could you just say something on an ending note, just about how, um, what, what, what technologies sort of are you most excited about coming up, just quickly? What is sort of on your horizon? Because you've always been one to sort of jump at the next thing and bring it in to really inform uh, what we know about just everything. Well, I think it's become commonplace to say we need to record from more neurons somehow. Um, I think we have a very, very poor handle on the chemistry of the brain and how it influences activity that's related to behavior. So I would love chemical sensors to to be developed and make tiny, tiny moves that way in our lab because I think it's just so unbelievably important. Um, there will be ways to monitor at multiple levels of analysis simultaneously. We'll be able to track... Uh, Gene transcription, gene translation, you know, spikes and LFPs and you know, calcium and all these various things. I believe soon we will do a lot of this simultaneously. Now this is this is in animals. What we need then are better sensors for humans. 
and I, I have to think that um, some combination of molecular biology and chemistry and creativity is going to going to give us those, and, and then the problem will be resolution. Unfortunately, I don't. I, I'm not enough of a physicist to know how to get more resolution in these imaging domains, but we desperately need that. For example, in our lab, we've <laughs> just uh, now work a lot on streams, and they can't be resolved by fMRI. It's just so frustrating. Um, so, I, so I think a combination of tools is a very important thing to go for. I think multi-level tools. Um, you know, it's early days for images. Of course, I'm very excited if we can even see a few neurons in the depth and really believe the, the neurons we think they are. And, um, of course, none of this would be possible if we weren't uh, making better and better animal models with uh, tagging. And we already know that in some parts of the world, uh, genetically uh, engineered monkeys are, are here already. And um, people are already manipulating cells in them and finding out many very fascinating things about Parkinsonian models and models of autism and so on. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you and for having you. me. This has been a Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>